0: HPPodcraft.com It is, I confess, with considerable diffidence that I approach the strange narrative which I am about to relate. The events which I propose detailing are of so extraordinary and unheard of a character that I am quite prepared to meet with an unusual amount of incredulity and scorn. I accept all such beforehand. I have, I trust, the literary courage to face unbelief. I have, after mature consideration, resolved to narrate, in as simple and straightforward a manner as I can compass, some facts that passed under my observation in the month of July last, and which, in the annals of the mysteries of physical science, are wholly unparalleled.
1: That was the opening paragraph of What Was It? A Mystery by Fitzjames O'Brien.
2: And you are listening to the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast.
1: Here at hppodcraft.com, I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm
2: Chris Lackey. Uh, Chad, why are we talking about Fitzjames O'Brien and not H.P. Lovecraft?
1: Well, uh, at this stage of the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast, we've been covering authors who Lovecraft liked and that he wrote about in his essay, Supernatural Horror and Literature. Uh. This is one such story that he uh, touched on briefly in there. Just wanted to say quickly that our reader today is Fred Cross. Fred's a great actor. He's been on the show before. He's going to be on the Joe Schmo show. Spike. Which premieres on Spike, that's right, uh, in the U.S. on January 8th. They've done a couple other seasons of it. It's where they have a guy who thinks he's on a reality show, but everybody's just an actor. Oh, I see. This one, I think they're doing Bounty Hunters, so it's people competing to be a bounty hunter, and Lorenzo Lamas is on it, and and Fred's (laughs) an interpreter for a deaf girl, so it's going to be pretty funny. Uh, That premieres January 8th. Thanks, Fred, for doing the show. He's great, as always. There's some other exciting entertainment-related things happening soon, right?
2: Hey, we ain't talked about deadbeats in a while. Well,
1: way. we've talked about it a lot, but those have been on our pay shows. So. Oh, all
2: right, yes. Oh, yeah. yeah, so this is on our, our open show. Just so yeah. folks know, there is a website called bookdepository.com that is free shipping worldwide. So that's the best place to get it if you're in America, Australia, or any part of Europe, BookDepository.com, that'll get it to you. Africa, China. Well, I don't know about China. Yeah. I, just, I just threw that out there. Yeah, probably China. But probably, yeah. So you can yeah. get it there. But I also wanted to By say- By it, the, you
1: mean our graphic novel, Deadbeats. Dead,
2: Beats. The uh, action horror comedy extravaganza, which is getting great reviews. Yeah, people are liking it. Ian and I, Ian is the illustrator of this book, Ian J. Colbard and I are going to be doing kind of a traveling man. We're going to be doing four of them, actually. So on the 26th of January in Leeds, Uh, the Mm -hmm. 9th of February in York, the 16th of February in Manchester, and the 23rd of February in Newcastle.
1: At the Traveling Man comic book store. So if you're
2: in or close to any of those towns, please come by and say hi to us. Ian is a very affable guy and he will (laughs) draw in your book and I I won't.
1: No, you won't do that? Yes, you will. You're an illustrator.
2: If you write, do you do a drawing in somebody else's book that drew the book? That doesn't seem appropriate.
1: Well, if I had the capacity to do such a thing I
2: I'll, I'll sign i'll write things i write little i'll write little things there though
1: you write little poems and little, little poems hangus. yeah <laughs> all right well <laughs> we haven't covered fitz james o'brien before and i have to admit i'd never heard of this author
2: before. no i never have i
1: but lovecraft was a fan and specifically what he wrote in supernatural horror and literature and why we're doing this after the poe shows that we did last month yeah uh, he wrote among the earliest of poe's disciples may be reckoned the brilliant young irishman Fitz James O'Brien, who became naturalized as an American and perished honorably in the Civil War. So he's, you know, early 1800s. It is he who gave us what was it? The first well shaped short story of a tangible but invisible being, and the prototype of de Maupassant's Horla, which we're going to cover later on the show. Yes, we are. Uh, he also. Created the inimitable diamond lens in which a young microscopist falls in love with a maiden of an infinitesimal world, which he has discovered in a drop of water. O'Brien's early death undoubtedly deprived us of some masterful tales of strangeness and terror, though his genius was not properly speaking of the same Titan quality, which characterized Poe and Hawthorne. Hmm. This was at a, a part of the essay where he was talking about American weird fiction authors. Right. But that's uh, that's Fitz James O'Brien in a, in a nutshell.
2: You said early 1800s, kind of mid. He was born in 1828 and died in 1862. Yeah,
1: you're right. About 34 years old. So. Yeah, he was
2: young compared to me. I mean, if you're like four, he's quite old.
1: <laughs> right. But he's younger than us. Right. When he passed away, which is too bad. A pretty great and influential career for uh, a short life. I mean, I, I've heard that this is this story that we're about to cover here. Spoiler alert, has some invisibility in it. and. Yes that's one of the first stories to cover that topic this is pre-hg wells Invisible yeah IM. well I, I think that diamond lens story sounds pretty amazing where the guy falls in love with the little,
2: a little microscopic uh, woman it's a
1: precursor for sea monkeys maybe <laughs> but the uh, um another story that he wrote which i found interesting is called the wondersmith which is about toys getting possessed by evil spirits and coming to life as these kind of at- automatons right which people say is it, it's sort of a precursor to robot rebellion stories
2: but i i think it's a precursor to puppet master
1: would sort have of made me think of too
2: <laughs> you know there are 11 puppet master movies no there's yes not. yes there are 11 there's one where they fight demonic toys it's called puppet master versus demonic toys but yeah there's one right. it was a pretty prolific i mean like i think one every year came out
1: but just to finish up some poe business since we were uh, fitz james o'brien is apparently this disciple of poe mm-hmm. there were some things on our show that we just did on the fall of the house of usher the last few shows that we I did. remember yeah. I wanted to first someone wrote in on a pronunciation this is my fault I had talked about Usher in the story plays what I said was Weber's last walls
2: all uh, right
1: and a listener wrote if you need to refer to Carl Maria von Weber in the future remember he was German say the W with a V sound Weber, right. much the way you would when referring to Richard Wagner so it should be Weber's mm, last
2: no he pronounced it he pronounced it Wagner
1: Oh, you pronounced it. Well, I think you're thinking of uh, somebody else. It's the guy
2: from Heart to Heart. That's who you're talking about, right?
1: No, Wagner was a, a composer. Not not the. You're thinking of Robert w- Wagner. Oh, from,
2: Robert oh, Wagner. Okay. okay, but they spell um, it the same. They do spell it the same,
1: but it's pronounced differently.
2: We live in a crazy world, man
1: even more excited than being corrected though. We were discussing <laughs> the books that Usher was reading in the story. Yes. And we had said there was one we weren't sure about, The Manual of a Forgotten Church, mm-hmm. and we couldn't come up with what it was, so we kind of threw it out there. Well, I got an email from the head of information management for the US State Department, Jerry Drake. Yeah. Who did know what the book was, and I thought what he wrote was so fascinating, I'm just going to read it to you real quick. Oh, that's yeah. Cool. He wrote, The manual of a forgotten church was, for many years, one of the enduring mysteries of Poe. The book is actually called by him, and it's a long Latin name that I won't murder, but it's you can see it in the in the story. All of the books on Poe's list in Usher are real books, but the Vigili, just this manual of the forgotten church, had never been matched up with a real text by scholars, so it was assumed for a long time that it was something Poe simply made up. Turns out, not so much. A guy named Thomas Mabbitt solved the mystery back in the 70s and his essay is posted online. So we'll link to that uh, if people want to do further research. Jerry Drake writes, the book is real and it is extraordinarily rare. It falls into a class of what are known as incunables – or Incunabula. Yours truly is one of the few scholars in the USA that can actually identify these books when presented with one. Wow. They are among the most valuable in the world. Essentially, their books printed using movable type during the first generation of printing in Europe and were genuinely produced before 1501. Man, I Think first generation iPhone or Atari 2600 is still in the box. The most famous example is the Gutenberg Bible. So rare are these things that even the Library of Congress owns less than 6,000 of them. So that begs the question, how did Poe hear about this book? Doubtless, no one in the USA owned a copy at the time Poe was writing. Only a few copies are extant. The collector's catalog, some stray reference. Was Poe doing HPL-style research, just cribbing things from other books? Either way, knowing what the book is makes it even weirder. As to the book itself, it's nothing more than a church manual, the instructions for running a service. I'm assuming Poe is leading us to believe here that there is some strange papist or Gnostic ritual in there that drew Usher's attention unnaturally. Regardless, it's unlikely Poe knew at all what was in the book. So reading the book itself probably wouldn't give us much of a clue. And, and that's what he wrote. Thanks, wow. Jerry. That's so Thank great. Thank so
2: much. <laughs> I'm one, impressed that he listens to our show uh, yeah. and, and two, that he knew so much. However – He does improperly use, uh, so this begs the question. Oh, really? What? Begging the question is, it's a type of fallacy. It's when you say something that is referring to what was actually said. So, for example, you say, Chet Pfeiffer is the smartest guy in the world. Mm -hmm. And I go, oh, where'd you read that? And you go, Chet Pfeiffer's blog. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So that would be, that's begging the question. I see. The Bible is the word of God. Well, how do you know that? Because the Bible says so. It's like, well, we're talking about whether or not this thing is credible. You're... Evidence is just begging the question. It isn't giving us any uh, any good information. Now, this is the whole thing about language. Is is how most people understand it the way it is now? Mm-hmm. You know, like when people say, I literally couldn't believe it. and Well, what that gets misused. Like, I, I couldn't yeah. believe it. But they put literally in there just because they think it means I really couldn't believe it.
1: Like it's an emphasizing word. Exactly. Than say, yeah. They use it as an emphasizing happened.
2: word and not to differentiate it between figurative.
1: Well, on this one, begging the question, I didn't know that that was the correct way to use it. Yes. So I think I've misused it the same way anybody else was. But I think you should maybe be careful when you correct the head of information management for the State <laughs> Department. Just because if Iran ever gets the Necronomicon, this is the guy that's going to be standing between – You're right.
2: Us and. (laughs) I like the way he says it better. Destruction. He does it the right way. Exactly. Very good. uh, Very good. Jerry, I I take it back. Uh, (laughs) My correction, I I rescind it. I rescind that correction. It's not true. I made that up. I made that up. I'm a jerk.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, that's the scoop from a real authority on the bow. Uh, book and that is way more uh, information than we could have ever provided. So, so yeah, thank, thank you very much. Thank you so much. much. Yeah, it's that,
2: a, that, my, the, the stupid little thing I said at the end. Do do not let it diminish what you give us.
1: <laughs> I, I doubt he will. So, okay, the sure. opening paragraph that we heard. We should get into the story here. Yeah, was great for any ghost story or horror story. I mean, you could really put that on top of anything. I don't think people are going to believe what I'm about to say, but I'm going to try.
2: Right. There's this guy who's referred to in the story as Mr. A. He mm. had this had this house apartment built building built about 20 years ago. He got caught embezzling money and left the country and then just died overseas. So there's this legend about his house being haunted, this house that he had built.
1: Because it it, it started the, the weird things that gave it that reputation happened pretty much right after.
2: Right after he died. Exactly.
1: It's an interesting detail, too, because I was positive. That whatever haunting was going to happen in the story, it had to be related to this guy, this Bernie Madoff character.
2: Exactly, Mr.
1: A. And maybe it does, it's hard to tell, but it...
2: I don't think so. I think it kind of throws us off the scent. I think that's what this sort of thing is, because, well, maybe it has something to do with it, but when we get to the end, uh, good luck trying to connect... What happens to this Bernie Madoff guy?
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, okay. Well, let's keep going and then we'll talk about it at the end.
2: Some people moved in to kind of watch the place. Once the guy died, it ended up being owned by a banker, some other person, it went somebody else's hand. So they had people mm-hmm. living there to kind of keep it up, but the people said it was haunted and so they moved out. Then they got some other people to come in and again, those people said it was haunted and they moved out. So it got this rep as a haunted house. This house is on the market for a while. Now this is where our protagonist, this guy, Harry comes in his landlady where he's living now sees that this place has been up for sale and is going for a cheap place and it's also more uptown kind of move it's it's a nicer place so she kind of says to all of her tenants hey i want to buy this place but i want to i do all want to kind of move with me even though it's supposedly haunted and everybody goes for it well almost everybody (laughs) there's a sea captain and a californian that won't have any part of it (laughs)
1: They immediately give notice that they're out of there, which was really funny to me because you know that's probably the only thing they've ever seen eye to eye about. You know what I mean? Right. Like it's a sea. Like the sea captain always gets annoyed because the Californian's always talking about sustainable fishing and <laughs> you know asking him if his parrot is free range. <laughs> California hates the captain's racist jokes. But once this lady mentions ghosts, they're both out of there. And I, I imagine that it would be in the cab they'd both realize, hey, we've seen all the same cult rituals. <laughs> you know, those are the two types of people that are going to get in trouble with that kind of thing: Californians and sea captains.
2: But anyway, they all go for it. They all think this is going to be a great idea. And then once Mm -hmm. they move in, they are on ghost alert level five. They are super excited (laughs) about living in a haunted house, just like I would be. And they're trying to see what kind of spooky things are going to happen.
1: Yeah. And one of the boarders has bought this book. They just, in the story, they call it Mrs. Crow's Night Side of Nature. You know, the boarder is reading it, but anytime he leaves it out, you know, everybody springs and tries to grab it because they're all super interested. They're mad at him. Because he didn't buy a copy for everybody. <laughs> yeah. And I had to look that up immediately because that's a, just a great title for a book. And it actually lends some depth to the story. It's pretty interesting. So Catherine Crowe mm-hmm. is the author that he's referring to. And she was a really popular English novelist. Apparently she had an unhappy, possibly abusive marriage. I, I, I didn't get too many details on mm-hmm. that, but it was a bad marriage early on in her life. She separated from her husband. She wrote a bunch of kind of sensational novels that were popular Uh and had at heart issues about Victorian women and this types of mistreatment that they received. Right. She started getting into supernatural topics. And in 1848, she published this collection that's referred to night side of nature. And that was incredibly popular. It's still being reprinted. It's not ghost stories, but it's, well, it is ghost stories, but they're not fictionalized. Really, it's like anecdotes of things that have happened and she comments on them. So it would be something that would be appealing to people who were into ghost hunting or. or. Right. But the interesting thing about this is, is that in 1854, not too long after the publication of this book, mm-hmm. she was discovered one night in Edinburgh, naked, running around, convinced that spirits had rendered her invisible. Oh, really? Yeah. And she was brought in and treated for mental illness. She eventually recovered. She continued to write.
2: Wow. That's like that Amazon Women on the Moon sketch with Ed Bakley Jr.
1: Oh, right. Where he thinks he's invisible. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody could see him. And this actually happened to Mrs. Crow. So interesting that in this story, they're reading her book, considering what happens in the story. And maybe that factored into the genesis of the story a little bit because this was written a few years after that had happened to Mrs. Crow.
2: Oh, right, right, right. Okay, yeah. So that that might tie in. These guys are there for a month and nothing happens except (laughs) the butler uh, saw a candle blow blow out, but he was drunk a bunch of the time. So nobody takes him seriously. (laughs) (laughs) No.
1: Now, there's something that happened when I was reading the story. After they talk about the drunk butler, Uh I got a copy of the text from online. I think it was Bartleby.com. And I pasted it into a document so I could do notes on it and we could share notes and that sort of thing. But then when I read it, I read it on my Kindle. I downloaded a book called Famous Modern Ghost Stories, which was public domain, Mm -hmm. edited by Dorothy Scarborough. And it's from 1921. It also has the willows in it, as well as a few other things we'll probably talk about at some point. So I read the story there. When I started doing my notes and I got to the section, I was like, wait, something's missing here.
2: The online version or from your Kindle version?
1: From the online version. Oh, okay. So my 1921 copy of the story had a few paragraphs that were just completely gone from the online version. Oh,
2: yeah. I read it online. So I probably didn't see those paragraphs. What, what, What happened?
1: These paragraphs are about opium. Really? Yeah. The narrator and the doctor both smoke opium together every night. Like, that's their thing. It says, independent of certain mental sympathies which existed between the doctor and myself, we were linked together by a vice. We both smoked opium. We knew each other's secret and respected it. Whoa. They've got, like, did you... Read these paragraphs? No. I'll just read this section here. It says, We enjoyed together that wonderful expansion of thought, that marvelous intensifying of the perceptive faculties, that boundless feeling of existence when we seem to have points of contact with the whole universe. In short, that unimaginable spiritual bliss, which I would not surrender for a throne, in which I hope you, reader, will never, never taste.
2: Whoa! That is a very pro opium heroin paragraph. There it is.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, he's saying please don't get involved in this, but if you do, it's awesome. You know, right. I mean, that, it pertains to the story in that the doctor and he go out and they make sure never to talk about anything macabre or frightening or dark.
2: Oh, because it would ruin their high.
1: Yeah, they want to keep their high light. So they they talk about the Orient. And they talk oh, about okay because it skips those things. It just goes right into. You know, I went out with Dr. Hammond to smoke my evening pipe, which in the paragraph before he says they always put a little ball of opium in the middle of the pipe in the oh, middle of the
2: All right.
1: And then they lit them. And the, the reason that he's getting irritated by the fact that the doctor seems bringing this perversity into the conversation the way he keeps trying to deflect it, that's all because of their normal opium routine. So it's really out of character when the doctor says, what do you consider to be the greatest element of terror? That must be because at some point this appeared in an anthology.
2: Yeah, well, I'm sure it was edited because it sounds like a pro-opium thing and somebody, it's neat that it was in your anthology that you got.
1: If you link out to this story from our show notes it'll go to a version that has those paragraphs in it okay that i did find online it's out there that way but there are two versions of it people should just know
2: wow that really does change the thing quite a bit
1: so when dr hammond asks him about the greatest element of terror they kind of go back and forth on that a little bit
2: well our guy harry tells this really creepy story about finding a a woman floating in the river yeah that was really which is really yeah and and how all these people just kind of stood around and she wasn't dead right like at first she died, like they watch her drown, but they're up too high to, to do anything. It's pretty crazy. Yeah, And, and they just kind of, that's it. They just kind of mentioned that story and they say, let's quit talking about this. This is creeping me out. But
1: it's really horrible. <laughs> yeah. They saw a woman go by drowning and were at such a locale that they couldn't do anything to save her. The conversation just gets too creepy for the protagonist, right? So.
2: Yeah. They said, hey, good night. I'm, I'm going to bed.
1: So Harry goes up to bed.
2: His book that he's reading right now is a book about monsters. Uh, it's called. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Gudon's History of Monsters but since he's all creeped out he doesn't want to read it so he just throws it away away, and he shuts down his lamp because they have gas lamps being that this is the early 1800s it's just a tiny little flame is the only thing that's left in his room and he goes to bed just trying to calm down and not be so freaked out
0: he's just trying to think of nothing while I was lying still as a corpse hoping that by a perfect physical inaction I should hasten mental repose an awful incident occurred A something dropped, as it seemed, from the ceiling, plumb upon my chest, and the next instant I felt two bony hands encircling my throat, endeavoring to choke me. I am no coward, and am possessed of considerable physical strength. The suddenness of the attack, instead of stunning me, strung every nerve to its highest tension. My body acted from instinct, before my brain had time to realize the terrors of my position. In an instant, I wound two muscular arms around the creature and squeezed it with all the strength of despair against my chest. In a few seconds, the bony hands that had fastened on my throat loosened their hold, and I was free to breathe once more. Then commenced a struggle of awful intensity, immersed in the most profound darkness, Totally ignorant of the nature of the thing by which I was so suddenly attacked, finding my grasp slipping every moment, by reason it seemed to me of the entire nakedness of my assailant, bitten with sharp teeth in the shoulder, neck, and chest. Having every moment to protect my throat against a pair of sinewy, agile hands which my utmost efforts could not confine. These were a combination of circumstances to combat, which required all the strength, and skill and courage that I possessed.
2: He's just in bed, and something drops from the ceiling on him and is is wrestling him in the darkness. Yeah, man. They wrestle, because it's really strange to me that he says, he gets him under these feats of strength. He pins him down, finally, which is like Mm. they wrestle. He doesn't punch this thing, which I would think, I would be trying to punch the crap out of this thing if it's trying to strangle me, but he just gets in a move. He, like, fully pulls on some professional wrestling moves. (laughs) He's doing a choke slam. He does a (laughs) leg drop. Then he finishes up with the crossbow, and then he goes, you know what? Let's do this. Superfly Snuka." Bam. <laughs> Superfly Snuka. Do you remember Superfly That's where you, so you climb up on the ropes, and then you jump down on top of the guy doing a body slam.
1: Of course, man. I loved pro wrestling. I'm a child of the 80s. I think everybody yeah. did.
2: It feels good, because he's got it pinned, and he's like, all right, yeah. yeah, I'm doing well. And he notices that it's breathing and moving, but it's not saying anything. It's also... It's not like a ghost or specter. It's a living thing. And he drags it over because he wants to see what's going on. He drags over to where the lamp is and he Uh turns on the lamp and then there's nothing visible. Yeah. Now, it's not that there's nothing there. He can feel it still and he hears it, but he can see it's completely invisible, like totally transparent. No shimmer, no anything, no predator stuff, just completely not there.
1: It had hands. It had skin. He could feel it shivering with agony, but but it's just not there. So
2: when this happens, he screams. Well, he figures he screams because everybody in the house comes running to his room. Hammond, who's the doctor guy, comes in first and says, what are you doing? And he goes, I'm wrestling with an invisible monster. And then Hammond, now this makes a lot more sense because if he knows he smoking opium
1: and in the story that you read he says you've been smoking too much but in the other version of the story he actually says you have been smoking too much opium that's the sentence so they just cut opium from the end of it
2: well it makes more sense now that you say it's opium because why yeah smoking pipe regular pipe doesn't make you hallucinate and wrestle invisible monsters
1: i'm an ex-smoker and i can tell you that camel lights were doing a lot of bad things to me but i never grappled with any invisible guys or anything (laughs) like that
2: so hammond doesn't believe him and he says look feel what i've got here there's something here and he's like okay okay all right, I'll, I'll feel. I'll feel. And he touches it. And then he <laughs> freaks out because it's like, my God, there is something here.
1: Yeah. He he helps him uh, hogtie the thing, right? Yeah. He
2: actually runs over, grabs a cord. Like he acts pretty quickly, runs over, gets a, a cord, ties up the thing and says, OK, you can let him go. Mm. And the thing is breathing and struggling, but it can't get out. People are still thinking that this was a put on, that there, this isn't anything going on. And then Harry and, and Hammond say, well... Come over here and touch it, and like, oh no, 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 that's fine. We're not gonna. Yeah, your your jokes, your jokes. But obviously, he says they were giving themselves a way out, so they didn't have to deal with it. Yeah. But then they pick it up and put it on the bed, and when they do, it drops. The bed creaks. The there's an indentation in the in the right. fabric. They can see the blankets moving around and stuff. It's really interesting and creepy.
1: And then that freaks everybody out. They just leave.
2: And then our our guy, Harry, says, this is unlike anything I've ever seen before. Hammond goes, well, you know, this is a lot like glass. You know, glass is transparent and you can kind of see through. And then Harry goes, this is nothing like glass. What are you talking about? (laughs) This is a living thing and we can't see it at all. But the glass, you could still see reflections and stuff. And he goes, well, okay, this is pretty weird.
1: And so they just hang out with it all night, not knowing what to do. And they do know that it falls asleep at some point because they can see it breathing regularly. In the morning, you know, the boarders are coming around to have a look at this thing and it's just writhing around and it's they're feeling it with their hands to try and get an idea of what it looks like.
2: Yeah, just and they, they know it's vaguely human ish. It's got a mouth and a round head with no hair. A nose mm-hmm. feels like a boy, like it's a young or a small person.
1: Earlier, they said it had the weight of a 14 year old. Right. So they decide, they, you know, it's, it's kind of fun to listen to them try and figure out what to do because we've had the benefit of lots of movies about invisible men and that sort of thing. So right, right away, they're, they're talking about maybe we can make a plaster of Paris cast of this thing.
2: Yeah. And I thought, first thing, of course, I go, why? Why you, just put powder on it or put some paint on That's it?
1: That's what I thought, powder. And
2: then they go, well, it's not going to stay still. So, like, well, I, the doctor's like, I got some chloroform. Let's uh, put the thing out and then we'll. Which is insane because they don't know if it's human. They don't know. They don't know what chloroform is going to do to this thing. It could kill it, right. or you know, maybe make it stronger, or turn into.
1: They do chloroform the creature yeah. after it passes out. They're able to take off all of its, you know, ties and that sort of thing. Yeah. And then the, a well-known modeller of the city comes in and and does this thing for them. Apparently, they they don't mention how he reacts to do it. No, they this, don't. But I imagine
2: it's got to be pretty unsettling. For him. Oh, there's a funny bit too where the landlady goes, You gotta get this thing out of my house and the Oh right. The the Harry's like, Hey look, lady, it's uh it's not our responsibility. This you own this building. Yeah. You if you want it out, you gotta take care of it because they're like, Well, what do we do? Do we kill it? What what happens? And then of course the landlady goes, Fine, I'll get rid of it and then she goes and tries to hire people to go take it out and nobody will touch it because it's a freaking invisible creature.
1: Well, and they know what it looks like, too, and it's pretty terrible because they, when they do get that cast, the plaster pairs cast on, they get a better look at what the thing actually is, and it says, It was shaped
0: like a man, distorted, uncouth, and horrible, but still a man. It was small, not over four feet and some inches in height, and its limbs revealed a muscular development that was unparalleled. Its face surpassed in hideousness anything I had ever seen. It looked as if it were capable of feeding on human flesh. What does that
2: mean? What does that look like? How do you look at something and go, oh, that could eat on human flesh? Well, I guess if you look
1: at it and if it looks like a, a predator's mouth somehow, if it looks like a... Teeth,
2: extended canine teeth.
1: Fangs, things that look like a carnivore's... But it says
2: human flesh. I guess, capable. Of course, they just go there because they're thinking ghostly <laughs> creepy
1: things. <laughs> well, let's talk about it when we finish off here. But I don't know what the heck the thing wanted to do anyway, I guess, because it, he attacked first. I mean, that was yeah. their first interaction with it, that they assume that that's what maybe it was after. Uh, right. I don't know. But like you say, it's nobody wants to touch it. Nobody's dealing with it. These two guys just have it tied up on the bed and they, they're trying to
2: feed it. Yeah, but it won't eat anything. And so they're just starving this thing to death. That's the most disturbing thing about the story to me is that. It goes on for two weeks. They just have this thing tied up for two weeks and then eventually it dies. They come in one morning and its body's cold. Yeah. And I'm like, they just let it starve to death. But I mean what like they didn't try and contact some kind of authorities like the police or, or some sort of hospital or some sort of scientists. I guess this is the early mid eighteen hundreds. Maybe there weren't really that many experts around to be able to come up with something. Maybe. I don't know. It's just but it's really disturbing and horrific. Not not just horrific in the fact that there's this invisible creature, but it's horrific what they kind of just end up doing because they don't know any better.
1: And they bury it or they dump it in a shallow grave.
2: Yeah, they don't say where.
1: And they keep the plaster cast and they...
2: It ends up in a museum.
1: Dr. X, who was the doctor with the chloroform, yeah, is keeping it in a museum. He's got his own
2: museum. Yeah, you know, on 10th Street, because this is all in New York. The story takes place.
1: So his museum must be medical oddities or something like that. Yeah. And then uh, this is the last sentence of the story. As
0: I am on the eve of a long journey from which I may not return, I have drawn up this narrative of an event the most singular that has ever come to my knowledge. And
1: that was the end of the story in the 1921 edition that I mm-hmm. read. Now, the online has this extra bit. It's a note. And it says, It was rumored the proprietors of a well-known museum in the city have made arrangements with Dr. X to exhibit this. So extraordinary history cannot fail to attract universal attention.
2: I didn't understand the point of that. Maybe this story was used as a tie-in for a freak show or something. And, uh, that's, what
1: I'm, that's what I was thinking, yeah.
2: Because it says it's going to be out in the public. So maybe they have some weird-looking 14-year-old that they did a plaster cast of. and
1: It's already been put in a museum at the end of the story. Yeah. And then the note says, oh, it's being moved from that museum to another place. Like, it just didn't make sense
2: to me. So. It's a weird note that doesn't add anything.
1: And I thought because the actual, before that note, the ending of the story is really good. Because yeah. he says, "I'm on the eve of a long journey from which I may not return," and it just adds that last little element of mystery. What's going on with him? Yeah, is he going off to the war like the author did, or is something else going on?
2: Yeah, maybe he's doing more research into the occult and the strange, and uh, sure, he's something dangerous is going on. Yeah, that, I mean that's the end of the story, and I think it's super cool. This is just so different than anything I've i've read in a long time and it just it's horrific in a very realistic way to me
1: the story is referred to as what was it which is a great title right it's also reprinted as what was it a mystery and it is a mystery in the truest sense of the term i mean nobody comes in to solve this thing no i don't know why the thing dropped from the ceiling onto the protagonist i don't know why it it was stacking furniture what was that earlier when you know people were the caretaker's We're complaining of the different hauntings. I assume it was this thing that was doing it. So, why was it doing that kind of stuff? And then finally, what is the relation of the creature to the man who built the house?
2: Yeah, the Bernie Madoff guy.
1: Because it didn't start acting out until he was dead. I don't know. So, was this a creature he used as part of his fraud activity somehow? then was no longer kept the right way once he was dead so it kind of went crazy
2: well i I don't know I, i think it's more interesting to just not know and i mean maybe when he moved away the thing crawled in from the sewer or something and decided to move in his house i don't know it there really doesn't seem to be any connection
1: but also he died of um he died of heartbreak which is curious I don't know, man. There's a lot. It begs a lot of questions. It's a really well-told story, and it's not very ornately told either. He's a good writer. It
2: doesn't, it doesn't beg questions.
1: Uh, it begs all sorts of questions. <laughs> 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 no, I mean, I thought that the language was really concise and well yeah. put together. Uh, he's called the heir to Poe, and I think probably choice of subject, but I don't think Poe would have tied it up this way, and I also thought he has an economy of language that you're not going to find in Poe. So No, definitely it, not. It is too bad this guy didn't didn't write more
2: yeah it creates that mood it's good weird fiction it doesn't really explain anything but something supernatural happens and yeah and and from that it it feels very real it almost feels like this is how people really would act and these are the problems that you would really have if you if this was found like somebody found an invisible creature you know that in the middle of new york in the mid-1800s there weren't experts there weren't those people and everybody just has to kind of deal with it and yeah they kind of do it in a really clumsy way (laughs) they just let it starve to death how horrible
1: yeah that that really is the part that disturbed me the most yeah was this sick invisible creature starving to death on the border's bed
2: yeah i just it seems pitiable to me like this thing yeah. whatever it is and horrible i mean of course if they let it go if, they, if it was a cannibal then you know it would eat people and you can't have that obviously
1: sure but you also i mean like they could have killed it as well but instead they very passively let it suffer
2: yeah nobody took took the initiative or wanted to take responsibility, it said, to kill it.
1: So the human behavior is a little more, maybe that's why it feels real. Yeah. Because people are waiting around for somebody, for a strong man to take care of these things.
2: Yeah, it's a really cool, very provocative. I
1: thought it was great how the protagonist was very um, into his own physical.
2: He sure was. He loved talking about how strong and big and and agile and stuff he was. (laughs) good self-esteem.
1: Yeah, he did. He feels good about himself. He
2: works out. It works out obviously it shows
1: next up we are going to get into some brahm stoker uh, that's on our page show we're going to cover layer of the white worm that's referenced in lovecraft's essay as well
2: yep he makes
0: fun of it a
1: little bit so it'll be interesting to get into it i've never read it before i do love dracula should be good stuff you want to tell them what those dates are you're going to be at the traveling man again you
2: bet i'm going to tell people these dates we're going to be in leeds on january 26th february 9th we'll be in york 16th of February will be in Manchester and the 23rd of February in Newcastle. So again, if you're anywhere near that or not, if you want to drive to come see Ian and myself, we would be more than happy to have you in our presence.
1: That sounds fun. Wish I could join you.
2: Sorry that Che can't be there.
1: But you should go in my place and and get your book signed. It's Deadbeats. It's available there. And if you are in the U.S., and you want a copy of it even though it's a UK release you can get it shipping is free and it's on discount right now at bookdepository.com we'll link out to it bookdepository.com we'll get it to you I'm Chris Lackey I'm Chad Pfeiffer
2: and you've been listening to the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast at hppodcraft.com
0: hppodcraft.com